Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. Say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook. Retweet and reshare an episode that you like. Say why you like it. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, pause your recording and stop what you're doing and give us a five-star review. And again, say what you like about it. We love feedback. Follow us on Twitter at, at @clergylay and join our Facebook discussion group. My name is Kirk Haberman and I'm a church musician. And this is my brother, Chris, a priest. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm great, Kirk. I'm tired. <laughs> but I'm great. It's just, I'm, I'm tired. It's a tiring week. Uh, I did, however, earlier this week, take my daughter, my lovely daughter, Jordan, to see oh. Black Widow. Yes. Kirk, it was so ba- good. It was so great <laughs> to be back in the movies, you know? I close like, my and eyes and I can smell it. Yeah. I, I want so badly to be there. Yes. And I, and I usually don't, you know, buy concessions, you know, because they're a massive ripoff. But they're so excited to have theater goers come back that I think yeah. they were discounted twenty five percent. So and and the cheapest popcorn, strangely, was the large. I think that was on special, and twenty five percent off because like the large was uh, five dollars, and then like the small was like six dollars, and then, like it was it was weird. But so we got a we got a popcorn, this massive bucket of popcorn, and I ate like two thirds of it, uh, <laughs> and it was it was glorious. It was it was. Just another uh, one of those butter markers. Butter? butter. Or, of course. Okay. Right. Of course. The, the key is markers. to not notice how much butter you put on it. Oh, I did not look as they did that. <laughs> as, as they brought it back and pumped, you know, how many pumps? <laughs> how many pumps? <laughs> yeah, and I did not check the nutrition facts. That would, that would, that defeats the purpose of just going to the movies and sitting there, mm. putting your arm around your children and, and, enjoying this the the cinema which is a a beautiful thing kurt so we too have a uh cinematic concession tradition um however it is um it is frugal economic haberman uh concession tradition uh and that is there is a five below um right next to our theater in the strip mall right next to our theater and a mutual friend of ours once taught us the key is to wear baggy clothing into the theater. <laughs> so you visit the five below, right? Because the five below, like as you check out, it's got like the dollar candies, right? Mm-hmm. You can grab like a massive, you know, 16 ounce thing of whatever. like Junior mints, patties, milk does. Junior, right, right. All that whatever. stuff. For me, peanut M&Ms or Reese's, right? 
and uh, and then and then like you have baggy clothes and you go to the theaters. So, Kirk, I am I am a man of God. Um, you are you are a godly man, ordained, set aside um, for the special purpose. So I was not going to include that I usually don't get concessions because we sneak stuff in. But um, if, if, if we're acknowledging that that's a thing, I remember. I always thought it was just a suggestion, the signage in the theater. Isn't that just, we suggest. I, I, I remember uh, when I, the first time, like I give Jordan strict instructions to not to conceal the, the, the candy we're jamming down her pants. And... And to, and also strict instructions, like, like don't indicate in any way to any employee that you've got this stuff. And, and she's like, why? And I said, well, we're not allowed to bring it in. And she said, and she just looked at me incredulously and was like, why would we break, you know, like, why would we do something that's not allowed? Like she, it did not compute Kirk. And it was so sweet. Yes. Like, oh dear. Like, right. And there's a deeply biblical gospel uh, um, kind of meta lesson here, which is like um, in many ways, we as broken parents, we are the, um, the snake in the garden, yes. <laughs> our children's garden yeah. of Eden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, well, I had the same thing. I had, I had to like explain to my children, like <laughs> we shouldn't do this. And uh, I already spent a lot of money to get you guys in here. And there are four of you. So I'm really sorry. This is a bad thing, but we're just going to do it. This is how we roll. Uh, so so I, Black I Widow. Should... Black Widow. But I have... anyway, li listen, listen. Okay, so I did pay for the popcorn, but uh, the bottles of water there are $5. And so we did sneak one of those in because we knew we'd be thirsty from the popcorn. So uh, Black Widow, what were you going to say? You're on this I weekend, was going right? to say I've committed to you to yes. see us um, this uh, this weekend before we record next week, so we can talk about it, and if not next week, then the following. Yeah, so we'll talk about it here. Yes, that was my Marv Albert. Yes, yes. No, but, is that Kevin Harlan? They sound the same. They uh, yes, they're mixed in my head. Giannis from downtown. Yes, that could be Kevin Harlan. And now, like three people know what we're talking about. <laughs> so, uh, before you and I recorded, um, rolling through here was a historic thunderstorm. Um, you could hear the lightning. Um, I'm I'm pleased and surprised that we still have uh, power and Wi-Fi. Um, I, I think probably most of it is gone, so the listener can't hear. Um, but I have had um, so I, I I saw that on the Weather Channel yesterday that it was going to be rolling through and so I, I did a bunch of yard work this morning with a new lawnmower Ooh. and by new i mean <laughs> not new i got new it on, to you i got it on facebook marketplace i met this dude in the parking lot of a dollar general <laughs> at a rural intersection in western pennsylvania at 904 p.m last night and uh, he's like, oh, he's like, do you want to see it run? I was like, yeah, I do actually. And it ran, and it kind of was clear that the push, like the, like the self propeller, self propeller mechanism wasn't working, which is fine, whatever. I'm okay with that, because um, it was a good deal. And so I, I, it took like two hours to mow just my backyard this morning because I think it needs a new belt. Like the moment it encountered any moderate, moderately tall grass. 
like the belt it just like it's the the blade stops spinning so i'm guessing that what? the belt that i'm guessing i'm picturing in my head the belt just like gently rubbing up against like whatever mechanism spins the blade and just like not catching so it took forever <clears throat> and uh i or i ordered plus it was overheating i checked the air filter like it might be the original air filter who was so clogged so i like right there in like outside on my iphone i ordered like a, an air filter through amazon so mr bezos i know you're retired but please deliver me an air filter so i can mow my front yard and I'm, I'm gonna have to go to tractor supply tomorrow to get what i think is uh, the belt which i think will be the uh the fix so you're gonna visit real america yeah so what we're saying is um maybe uh my frugality is um not always not always beneficial see but i thought i had a cheat code christopher because three years ago when my last mower broke I got one on Facebook Marketplace, and it was great. <laughs> it lasted me for three years. So I thought three, three years thing. is not great, Kirk. I even if it's fifty dollars or whatever. Push mowers are super cheaply built. Like they are not high quality. They're they're not great evidence of um, the pro technological progress of Western civilization, in my opinion. But do, do you know what uh, re requires no spark plugs or gas? Tell me. A goat. <laughs> no. Uh, do you know that while mom and dad lived in, in Moorhead, they, they had a, like a, I don't even know what you, non, non motorized. Yeah. Or it was just one of those things that you kind of go back and forth and back and forth. Back. Yeah. Well, Christopher, you know me. Do you think I briefly pondered that as I was? Oh, uh, definitely. <laughs> I was definitely pondering that. Yeah. But I like I was wondering like once those once those get dull. I think like, it's self-sharpening. I think it's self-sharpening. That sounds I think good as it too. nothing self-sharpening. I think as you like push it back and forth, there's like a I don't know. Really? Because that would be awesome. I think you have you have two parents you could ask about it. Yeah. I mean, but that sounds like I don't know, too good to be true. Like stuff just doesn't get better. Like stuff just doesn't multiply. Like you just can't have a meal and then it becomes hundreds and thousands of meals can you This week's gospel lesson comes from Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. 
But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they ate all, I'm sorry, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week we talked about the disciples going out, being sent out two by two, and here they return. And certainly there are lessons, even if we agree that the instructions for them leaving were not uh, universal instructions. There were um, instructions that Jesus happened to give at one time in one place. Um, but we can still learn from that. We pointed out last week that, that there's companionship and encouragement in, in pairs. Uh, and, and likewise, as they return... Uh, the, the disciples, the apostles, they, and, and an apostle is a technical term, which it's, uh, is, uh, it means sent ones, these people who were sent out. So notice um, it was the disciples that were sent, but the, these apostles now returned. And uh, what's the first thing they, they require when they come back? Jesus says, rest a while. Hmm. You know, rest is biblical and, and in a, in a workaholic culture, in a culture that uh, makes you feel guilty for resting and, and for not working all the time, it's it's good to remember the importance of rest. Uh, many many pastors have to work very hard and fight for uh, sabbaticals, um, for for time set aside for rest and renewal. Uh, and uh, oftentimes, uh, people in business say say to them, they say we don't get sabbaticals. Why should you get time uh, to rest? Which is kind of a silly uh, thing to say. Like uh, it's, it's important yeah. for everyone. And just cause like your business doesn't have the vision to see that you need this doesn't mean that everyone doesn't require rest. And so, so they, they go in this boat, uh, but this is the, the geography of this area is, is curious in that like trying to go by boat to a desolate place. Uh, it's kind of easy for the people to see where they're going. And um, as we talked last week about how there is kind of a connection between the response of people and, and kind of the miracles that happen and uh, that um, the people who have faith um, that they see, I don't want to lean too hard into this because uh, it's not us that, that, that can kind of corral God and, and put him on a leash and, and make him do our bidding. Um, I'm just merely pointing out that, in fact, these people who pursue Jesus – um, get sustenance. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, it's don't want to push also re reassuring. Yes. In, in, indeed it is. <laughs> yeah. Where, where we see, um, Jesus say that some people aren't going to listen. So dust off your feet, uh, and, and leave them. But, um, these people are, are chasing Jesus down. Um, and just Jesus has compassion on them. Uh, and, and sheep without a shepherd, of course, uh, this is a, a biblical term that's often used for, for people in the Old Testament without a king, without guidance. Um, and, and that's who these people are. They, um, and Jesus is our good shepherd and Jesus is, is our king. 
and uh, the hour comes late and they're hungry and Jesus provides. So I'm, I'm just going to kind of skip some of the uh, some, some of the details here to get to the broader point. Uh, and the point is this, that uh, the miracles of Jesus are quite different than the miracles we see in Acts. In Acts, usually we see a miracle that um, a result of which is, is, is faith, that like God uses great works to, to, um, as kind of evidence of his great power, where uh, that's not what Jesus is doing here. And also, like, Jesus doesn't always feed everybody who's hungry. Uh, and what this is about is this is about the inbreaking of the kingdom. Um, I mentioned that uh, last week. We're seeing that a lot recently, that this is about the, 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 the kingdom uh, coming to earth and being made real. These people, they have eaten, and it says that they were satisfied. And this is no small thing in in this hand-to-mouth society. To, to eat as much as you want would be a rare experience for many of these people gathered here. This is not, <laughs> so something might happen only a few times a year. And the book of Deuteronomy, uh, specifically uh, chapter eight, verse 10, promises this sort of thing as a feature of the promised land that people would eat and be satisfied. Um, this, this is uh, an indication of like the true promised land of this, of this heavenly kingdom coming to earth. Um, and, uh, we've, we've talked before about the, the five loaves and two fish. Uh, I read, I came across something that I'd never seen before that Luther proposed that the five loaves represent things understood by the senses. There are five senses, mm. right? Um, and, uh, and five loaves and the two fish stand for the patriarchs and the prophets. The fish are cooked since, um, many, prophets were persecuted and martyred. So there's like a, you know, a literal, you know, cooking. Um, isn't that curious? Uh, 12 baskets left over represent the 12 apostles, the results of Jesus work, which goes, um, beyond things that we can know by the senses or learn from the Hebrew scriptures. So that's something I had not encountered before where the traditional understanding, uh, and we remember that, uh, many of the, uh, patristics, many of the early church fathers yeah. were, were very, very, um uh what's the word i'm looking inclined for? to allegorical readings of yes. scripture yeah. yes yeah and exactly. so like it's helpful for us to so i have heard like people i respect um entirely dismiss <laughs> um the you know first five centuries of christian <laughs> preachers because they used allegory as um as a primary hermeneutic and so it's reassuring to know like yeah, Luther did too. So like Renaissance divines <laughs> who had a lot more scholarship at their hands didn't think themselves too good to read scripture the way, say, Irenaeus did or Origen or Cyril of Alexander, et cetera, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Kirk, we would call this chronological snobbery, this right. sense of yes. like, we are smarter than these early Christians, <laughs> which, gosh, the opposite could definitely be said, right? That these church mm -hmm. fathers, um, w these are our, our grandfathers in the faith, and we like we need to read them and understand them yeah. better. And, and there is certainly on the Protestant side of things this this sense that that everything before the Protestant Reformation was kind yeah. of uh, like we can Except comfortably... for Augustine, right? <laughs> Except for Everyone loves Augustine. But here's the thing, right? The, you scratch Augustine's sermons for 27 seconds and you realize that's how he read scripture too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so the, the, the traditional understanding that, that the uh, church fathers give us is that the numbers are significant, that, that there are five books of the law that they feed the people of Israel just as five, the five loaves feed these people. And there are 12 baskets left over just as there were 12 tribes of Israel. Um, uh, and, and Kirk, you may have more to say about that in a little bit. Um, and, and Kirk, you and I have really, really come to appreciate how um, this is a foreshadowing and a foretaste and a preparation for mm. the Eucharist. That, that even the language that Jesus took bread, he blessed it, yes. he broke it, and he gave it to them. Those four verbs are what he does on the, the night of the Last Supper. And in fact, uh, we're given details here that uh, the grass is green, uh, I believe. Let's see, where does it say that? I just want to make sure this is true. Um, do you see so, this anywhere? I was, I was. Uh, okay, well, they're in a desolate place, right? We see that in thirty-five, um, and so it's verse thirty-nine. Verse thirty-nine. Okay. Yeah. yeah, on the green grass. So uh, this place that they were in, um, this indicates very clearly that it was springtime. Because <laughs> the only time the grass was green was in the spring. And what else is in the spring? Easter. Well, the Passover, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> right, right, yes. right. Yep. So, so the Passover is in the spring. And so it's significant as Jesus, right around Passover, um, as he is will do on the night of the Last Supper, reinterpret the Passover, that Christ is our Passover lamb, right? Um, and, and Jesus said, this is my body as he, as he lifted the, um, the Passover bread. So, uh, this is all incredibly, uh, significant. Um, and as we think about this today, um, and, and, and John makes this very explicit, um, uh, your fathers ate, uh, manna right. in the wilderness and they died. <laughs> I am the bread of life. Those who, uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, um, will never die. And so Jesus gives this teaching very clearly in, in the book of John. Um, and then in, in Mark and Luke, it's, it's a, a little less clear. But when we think about what exactly the Eucharist, what, what communion is, Kirk, um, the, the communion is this uh, sac continuing sacrament. So, so we in the Anglican Church, we have two sacraments. Um, baptism, which is uh, the rite of initiation, where we're, we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Um, and many benefits and blessings are bestowed there that, that um, uh, there's the forgiveness of sins, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, as, as uh, scripture says. Um, and we are washed and, and we believe uh, we are, there's a washing of regeneration, um, which we see in scripture. Many things happen at baptism, but it's, it's this one-time initiatory rite. And then um, we're given this, this um, sacramental meal that is uh, food for the journey. Mm-hmm right? That, that, that's what manna was in the desert. And um, this is food for our spirit, for our journey throughout life is that we are sustained spiritually um, by Holy Communion. And um, this is what Jesus gives them here is, is uh, sustenance in a deserted place. Uh, and that's what we get in, in this life that we have. We get sustenance. We get food for our journey. Amen. Amen.
I, Kirk, I, I just have to acknowledge this, that I am hearing some wailing and gnashing of teeth on your end. Uh, there will yes. be a good story when you, when, when we finish up this podcast. Yes. Let me, let me briefly pause uh, to <laughs> deal to with it. Comfort Daphne. I'll be right back. Okay. All right. I'm back. Um, so my daughter's mini crisis was um, the fact that she had spilled bubbles on a chair in the it, living room. It is distressing. It was distressing. Yeah. So uh, speaking of distressing, um, this passage, for whatever reason, Christopher, I think, I don't know how far back this goes. This may go back 150 years um, uh, to the beginning of kind of uh, uh, higher criticism in, in these texts. Uh, probably, I mean, you see it back in the Jefferson Bible. This passage is uniquely a stumbling block to liberal Protestantism. Uniquely. Why? Um, because it is such an audacious, shocking, uh, there, there's no, there's no way of like explaining it, right? Like, so a lot of exorcisms can be kind of massaged away with modern psychology, right? Yeah. It's a mental illness or, right. Yeah. Or some of the healings, um, maybe you, uh, there, there are kind of ways of reading it that you don't have to think too hard about the miraculous nature of it. But there's no way of massaging away the miraculous nature of this, right? You can't feed 5,000 people with low no, five 5,000 men. So 5,000 like, men, likely right? Likely 15 yeah, to 20,000 yeah, people, yeah. So this, uh, Christopher, I, I remember um, kind of one of my earliest memories in the church was uh, I'm hearing a debate between two people. Um, that a sermon had been preached alleging that uh, maybe this was metaphorical or or the point of this isn't to read it as an, an actual historical event. And someone else saying like, whoa, what's our criteria then for um, when and how to read certain passages of the Bible, especially passages of the Bible, like the gospels that say they are histories, historical accounts, right? Now this is out of Mark, but, but uh, Luke, for example, um, explains at the beginning, <laughs> um, I've written this <laughs> so that you have an account of these events, right? So um, yeah, so, the, so I, that's just notable, right? This, this is uniquely a stumbling block. There's, there's no way to read yeah. it other than the fact that either this happened or it didn't. there is a God man yeah. who can make one meal become a meal for thousands or this text is unreliable and yeah. mythical. Yeah. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, like, what is, what is Mark trying to tell us? And so he's not pointing to the generosity of people that were so moved by Jesus. That is not what Mark is saying. So either it's reliable or it's not. You're exactly right. right. Uh, another thing I want to point out is uh, the psalm that's been appointed uh, for this coming Sunday. That It, it pairs, uh, it's a su surprising choice, Christopher. And yet it pairs well, and it pairs well, Christopher, with a theme that you teased out of this text here in Mark chapter six. And it's a, a section near the end of Psalm 22. Now, Christopher, when in the liturgical year, when in the church calendar, do we typically encounter Psalm 22? You tell me. Good Friday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, this is often, um, uh, this can sometimes be uh, chanted or sung 
by a cantor or by a choir during the stripping of the altar on Monday Thursday, and oftentimes is is chanted or sung as well or just spoken for austerity's sake um, in the liturgy on Good Friday. And it's appropriate, right, because um, Jesus quotes this um, with his uh, in his final breaths as he cries out, mm-hmm. "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Yeah, in oh. Psalm 22, verse 26, we see yes. uh, the, the poor shall eat yes. and be satisfied. Yeah, so this this portion, Christopher, you're so you're so eager to get to it. It's interesting. Psalm 22 does take a turn. Like many of these um these these psalms of lament, they do take a turn at the end. Um they don't they don't they're not like unromantingly unrelentingly lamenting <laughs> that's a that's a tongue twister unrelentingly no, lamenting throughout in the many, entire psalm in many of them there's a turn but yeah. you, oh lord you know are this yes but you oh lord right and so um this portion of psalm 22 it begins at uh verse 23 so rather far in oh praise the lord you that fear him magnify him all you seed of jacob and fear him all you seed of israel for he has not despised nor abhorred the low estate of the poor. He has not hidden his face from him, but when he called unto him, he heard him. Uh, I'll skip a verse to then verse 26, which you quoted, the poor shall eat and be satisfied. And then Christopher, this is, this is what you said. Those who seek after the Lord shall praise him. May your hearts live forever. God does not leave hungry those who seek mm. after him. Mm. And as you said, uh, we, have, we have food for the journey, right? Mm. Um, we, are, we are fed weekly um, at his table. Um, our sins are forgiven um, and his living body um, becomes food for our souls. And so, um, you know, those who seek after the Lord shall praise him. Why? Because the poor shall eat and be satisfied. So we see there as well a... in. We, this would be another great Sunday school series, um, the Eucharist in the Old Testament, right? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> we see it there again. And then kind of the last observation I have is you, you brought this up as well, Christopher. You've been uh, particularly observant in your comments on Mark 6. Um, we see the shape of the liturgy, right? Um, this, this comes from the scholarship, which is now a bit dated, but it's interesting. Dom Gregory Hicks, Hicks, Dom Gregory Dix. From 1940, the, the book is titled The Shape of the Liturgy, in which he notes that you constantly have this sequence, this, this, this holy, ma- magical, in, not in the hocus-pocus sense, but like in the, I mean, magic has been slandered, I think, in kind of enlightenment rationalism. But like, what other, isn't, aren't miracles in the best sense miraculous, right? Isn't the fact that God can feed us, isn't that magical, right? So we have this kind of magical, miraculous sequence of, of, of actions throughout the New Testament. And you see it here as well, right? Um, they sit, um, right? So like we sit down for God to feed us, right? They sat down in two groups. Um, and they have the taking, right? The taking of the loaves and fish, looking up to heaven and blessing. Take, bless, break, and then give. And, the, and all those verbs are very specifically there and in that order. So that's just, it's just remarkable. And that is all I have to say about that. Uh, Kirk, since you raised the, the psalm, uh, <laughs> I just want to ask you if this pops out to you. Okay. Psalm 22, 
uh, the first half of twenty of uh, verse twenty four. For he has not despised nor abhorred the lowest state of the poor. Is there any hymn lyric that that brings to mind for you? But the Magnificat. Okay. For he hath regarded the lowliness of his head maiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall arise. Sure. He, sure. Uh, do you know what comes to mind for me? Tell me. Is, is a line from O Kamali Faithful. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Yes. So it's, it's different, but yes. they, they, like it has to be taken from this, right? Like oh. he has abhorred not the... So the virgin's womb would be a low thing, right? Um, right, and connecting that with Mary, right? Who she mm -hmm. recognizes, yeah. he hath regarded the lowliness of his head maiden, yeah. right? Like she yeah. acknowledges her humble station and, and marvels that God would choose her and says yes to that. Um, and Jesus abhors not her womb as a, as a fit um, throne room, as his first throne room on earth. Yeah, I love that. That is so yeah. great. Yes. Um, Christopher, we have uh, something exciting to talk about and uh, no obvious, no obvious um, transition. So uh, do you have any final thoughts? No, uh, are you are you sure you don't want to, to effort a transition though? No. <laughs> Did you have one in mind? No. No, <laughs> okay. I just I just appreciate your uh, your efforts. Oh, my my efforts stink. I am I always cringe uh, when I listen to them later, but it's it's fun. Just yeah. shout transition. That that is a thing that you have done effectively. I've heard transition. Theology segment is up now. For our theology segment today, uh, we're going to talk about um, different models of church governance or church polities, um, or <laughs> as we should could properly technically call it, ecclesiastical polity. Um, and Christopher, in our in our context in um, in Anglicanism, um, one of the great Elizabethan Church of England divines, Richard Hooker, his magnum opus was the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity which was his great kind of apology for basically the reformed Catholicism, which is kind of one of our great heritages in Anglicanism, um, a Catholic Episcopal polity that has been reformed and gospel centered. So, um, and, and there, are, there are reasons why we wanna, why we wanna talk about that. Um, uh, in uh, the Christian Twitterverse, um, our bishops here in North America have been, are being dunked on a bit and uh, I want to come to a, a mild and winsome defense of Episcopal polity. Um, but we thought that it, this would be a great opportunity to kind of do a brief survey of church polities. Um, because even if you don't think you have a polity, that's a polity. And there's a name for that. <laughs> so we wanted to talk about that. 
And let's talk about that one first, Christopher. And this is probably, I, I just, I just write, type this up as the free church polity. Now there are some churches in, 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 in England and Scotland, they're literally called free church. You know, you walk into, let's say, uh, you, you walk into Smithton, a town, and you'll go to the town square and there'll be Smithton free church. And what that means is it is wholly independent of any uh, larger church body. Um, and so the belief among free churches is that the apostolic inheritance is wholly the faith once delivered to the saints um, and not a visible church. So that is Christ came to pass on uh, kind of a body of teachings, right? The Bible and nothing else. So there's, there's no instructions for vis a visible church. Uh, when he ordained his apostles, that was it. And when they died, that was the end of them. And whoever maintains the teachings of the apostles maintains the apostolic church. And I think, Christopher, is this unfair to say that this is largely the belief of American evangelicalism? It's probably, probably not thought through a lot. It might be incoherent. It might be kind of a premise that's kind of lurking under the surface, but that's yeah. basically the premise, right? Yeah, like the there's... apostolic faith is just the faith, not the church. Right. Yeah. And, and that, um, that's why, like, it's kind of interesting. There are, you know, new church churches forming, like there's the four square church that in like 1920 was like, <laughs> let's just figure out what, it, what the apostolic faith is. And let's find these like four things that it, it was. And it's like, rather than saying, well, no, we are in part of this inheritance, like, um, you know, that, that the, the, the body itself is not separated from the message. Right. Which is, you know, something that we believe. Right. Um, and, and, and so like, the wheel has been invented and reinvented like dozens of times in America. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, uh, you and I've put it this way, which I think is a really helpful way and really forces Christians to think hard about this, I think, which is a high view of the Holy spirit is a high view of the church. So if you believe that the Holy spirit is guiding, guarding and protecting the saints in the faith, um, then, then you believe that, that his faithful, are not abandoned here, but rather protected and and are kept secure from generation to generation. And what is the vehicle through which those things are kept secure? But the church, right? Did Christ come to institute a thing, a vessel to guard and protect the faithful against the storms of the world? The church, the right, the ark, as as Saint Peter says, right? Um, as in the times of Noah, an ark was built to protect. Um, but now you have been baptized. That saves you now. The ark saved them. Your baptism into the church saves you now, right? The church will save you. So, I mean, I, I think very, very simply, our, our kind of gentle thought for uh, free church people and free evangelical people here in the United States is um, uh, if you believe that Christ actually came and didn't, and, and it wasn't all an accident, the Acts of the Apostles wasn't an accident, if it was all part of God's plan, and the Holy Spirit really does work, then you probably need to rethink the free church model um, because then Christ did institute something. And then the question is, well, how is that something governed? Um, sure. Not willy-nilly, but he had a plan. <laughs> and and so. we see this actually working itself out in the words of scripture. Like, so we have these things called um, uh, the pastoral epistles. So Paul's epistles yeah. are kind of broken up into to different kind of portions. And the pastoral epistles would be uh, the, the Timothys and Titus. Yes. Um, where, where, like, uh, before, the, uh, long before the Bible was canonized and, and uh, like, 
before there there were new testament scriptures there was the church and the church is like has a structure and like he describes like qualifications for an overseer so as like scripture is being written the church existed and then the church it is the church that kind of handed down and canonized scripture uh and, and so it's interesting that that um there are people who say i, I have no creed but the bible um, which in itself, first of all, is a creedal statement, a creed, right? Right. Um, but also that, like, um, you know, the uh, creeds in, in in the church preceded um, kind of the canonization of scripture. Um, you know, we can look back, and and it's kind of debated, like, at what point um, the canon was uh, kind of. Uh, not put together. I mean, obviously it was written at different parts. You know, we see letters written at different parts. Um, but but um, I think it's like uh, Athanasius's like festal letter um, that is the first time that like all the books were listed together. So was it possible that that um, they were kind of understood to be, you know, as Paul was like, oh, you share this, this letter with this other church. I don't mean to like go too far down this rabbit trail, but like it is interesting that people are like, no, Bible only. Um, uh, ign- uh, don't acknowledge that that in fact there there were like bishops and priests and deacons um, that kind of predate um, the scriptures. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and we'll we'll want to get into historical arguments um, a little later. So the the next uh, polity after free church uh, is the congregational polity. I think we're I, I want to kind of build from. Um, most loosely organized to have most thoroughly organized. So the congregational polity, um, there are some churches, maybe you've even attended one, um, that are called a congregational church. And the, the rationale behind that is that the local congregation rules itself, elects its own leaders, both clergy and lady, ordains its own clergy, and is a self-governed voluntary institutions. And the, the best example of this is the, um, are the Puritan churches in New England, um, which as they fled the Church of England in the 16th and 17th century, um, they, they, they self-consciously wanted to choose a different church polity, and so they decided on a congregational polity. And uh, later on, those became, uh, instead of, they became called congregational churches, and then I think, are they, is it? Is the largest body of that, I think it's called UCC, United Congregational Church. United Church of Christ. United Church of Christ. Like loosely called the Congregational Church. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there are many congregational churches that don't like use this term to describe them. But yep. Like many Baptist churches are congregational. Mm. And and um, there are some. So it's interesting. Some of these these breakaway. Uh, so there's a, a breakaway ELCA congregation that calls itself the Lutheran Congregations in Mission for Christ, the LCMC, uh, um, which uh, is which differs significantly from the ELCA and the NALC, right? Um, in that, like, they are very congregational in their polity. So, yeah, yep. So that is a, that is another way of organizing your your church bodies. Then there's the Presbyterian polity. Um, so this is many Reformed churches. Uh, notably those in the Presbyterian and continental Reformed traditions. So if you ever uh, drive past a Reformed church or a Presbyterian church and you're like, huh, what's that? Um, They're governed by a hierarchy of councils. And so like think of the councils different, this hierarchy of councils as rungs on a ladder. So the lowest level council governs a single local church and its members are called elders. So like a Presbyterian church will have elders. 
And then that church sends representatives to the next level up, and that's called a presbytery. And, um, and uh, in fact, our word priest um, in, in, in other traditions comes is sort of a corruption of that Greek word. Uh, how do you say it, Christopher? Presbuteros or presbuteroi, right? But um, it's a corruption of that. So presbytery, it just means elder, right? Am I wrong about that? You're, you're correct. Okay. So in some Presbyterian churches, there is an additional council up, a general assembly or a synod. Um, so those would be kind of continental reform churches that are the national church. Um, so this might be in places like, um, I don't, I don't know enough about this. I could get this wrong. I, I don't even think there's a national church in um, Netherlands anymore. I think those reform churches split up into some labyrinthine tree, but um, so all of this was developed in the 17th century, leading up to the English Civil War as Puritans in the Church of England grew in hatred of the saintly Archbishop William Laud, I say that in a trollish way, uh, and began to seek another form of church government to get out from under the bishops. So there was uh, there's growing dissent among probably what we would call like low churchmen. Um, they were frustrated with the bishops uh, in the 1600s. Uh, and, and they were kind of thinking on their feet, like, Hey, if we actually had enough power or we could overthrow the bishops, what would we substitute for it? And it became this theory of Presbyterianism. And so that's that. And I, as I sometimes like to point out, um, the, the first council of Presbyterian divines, it's called the, the Westminster, Westminster assembly. And I think it was, uh, 1645 after the civil war has been largely won. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, Charles the uh, William of Laud William of Laud William Laud the Archbishop of Canterbury has been killed Charles the first has been captured I think captured by that point and many of these were former churchmen in the Church of England and um, they just decide to come up with something new make a new church and that's uh, Presbyterianism um, so that's that. And then we have synodical polity, and this is many Lutheran church bodies here in the United States. Uh, Lutheranism, most of Lutheranism lost apostolic succession in the, um, in the Reformation. And so they, they relied upon their local princes in Europe for leadership. But what happens then when you emigrate to the United States um, and you don't have a Lutheran president, right? Uh, most presidents in the 19th century were kind of waspy were either Episcopalian or Presbyterian and uh, or Dutch reformed or something like that. And, um, and so you can't appeal to a Lutheran prince and they came up with these synods. So like um, the largest of these bodies, the um, LCMS, Lutheran Church, Lutheran Missouri Synod. Oh my gosh, this is Lutheran hilarious. Church, Missouri Synod. Lutheran LCMS. Church, Missouri Synod. Um, they, uh, they are a synod, so they just kind of send representatives to a larger body, but they have um, basically an archbishop, uh, Matt Harrison, but they can't call him that um, because they've lost apostolic succession. And, um, and, and, and as a result, they don't, it, it's, it's not important in their eyes, but they think uh, the apostolic deposit is just the faith, not uh, the passing on of authority, uh, which we'll get to in a moment because Christopher, Let's talk about Episcopal polity. Churches having an Episcopal polity are governed by bishops. The title bishop comes from uh, the Greek word episkopos, which translates as overseers. 
bishops have authority over the diocese, which is both sacramental authority, right? Christopher, your um, authority to preside over Holy Communion flows from the fact that your bishop ordained you to do so, ordained you to do so, right? He, uh, mm -hmm. he tasked you to do this, to pastor to a particular community, to preach to them and to give the sacraments. But it also transfers to a bishop political authority. So as well as performing ordinations, confirmations, consecrations, the bishop supervises the clergy of the diocese. Sometimes they're called the pastor of pastors and represents the diocese both secularly and in the hierarchy of church governance. Um, so Christopher, do you have, do you have anything, uh, anything you wanna add to that before we kind of talk about the pros and cons of, yeah. uh, of this model and a, maybe a little defense and discussion of church history? Well, uh, I do want to um, kind of step forward and, and provide a little bit more nuance and uh, information about how, well, I guess how the ACNA works. Because um, not all Episcopal polities work the same way. Like Roman Catholics have an Episcopal polity. Uh, even the Pope is, 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 is a bishop, you know, it's, right. it's, um, he's the Bishop of Rome. Uh, and <clears throat> so I think, uh, you know, every, it's good to simplify things. Uh, but then as we simplify, we can also clarify. So that's where I want to provide the nuance. So oftentimes people say, well, there are congregational churches that give a lot of authority to, the congregation and particularly the members who essentially vote on many things. Uh, and then there's um, Episcopal polity, which is very hierarchical. Well, um, yes, we are hierarchical with um, uh, bishops overseeing, uh, uh, you know, priests and which oversee uh, churches. Um, but uh, our churches operate with kind of a really Kirk, a third way. Um, it's, it's kind of a blended form of, of governance where uh, while we have bishops that oversee our, our individual churches, Kirk, uh, our churches have uh, a lot of like leeway locally. A lot of, um, there's a lot of freedom given to local parishes uh, to kind of set their agenda, their vision, uh, and, and make many of the decisions locally. Does that make sense? What I'm tr trying to say as far as like this being very different than just like purely hierarchical. Yeah. Yeah. It does. I mean, you and I were talking before we pressed record that um, uh, we find it a sign of health that so many parishioners that you and I know understand very little um, how diocesan decisions are made. And that's healthy because they've never had to know right. because their focus and energies are naturally on parish ministry, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> on, on, on the, the weekly and daily and annual activities within their parish. And so, you know, when, um, when a car is running, right, um, you don't have to know how the engine works. Um, but when you have to look under the hood and, and learn the parts for the first time, it's, it's kind of a new thing because you've been driving that car for, you know, 120,000 miles and you didn't have to know about it. So that's right. Um, in, a healthy, in, in a healthy Episcopal polity, uh, you know, very active, godly, engaged parishioners may spend a decade <laughs> and not really have a sense that they're part of an Episcopal structure, right? That the church 
their church actually belongs to the bishop, right? Their priest, who they love, actually the bishop could pull them tomorrow, right? And like stuff like that, right? You're yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, the bishop doesn't give us our marching orders. The bishop provides oversight, both spiritual and um, uh, other oversight. But uh, like the the local mission is is determined by that yeah. local church. Um, That's and, right. And uh, they independently determine like how they're going to live out um, their their mission in the broader church. So they're not independent, um, but they, like they independently determined that. Like we set our own budget. We set our own kind yeah. of uh, priorities. Kind of um, as, as, uh, part of this broader, uh, movement and even the way that our, our, um, our rectors or our senior pastors, uh, uh, uh kind of a misunderstanding there, uh, and, and a difference. Um, we had someone, uh, from our church remark how in the Lutheran, the ELCA Lutheran church, uh, she said, uh, which she was raised in, she said the church councils, parish councils almost had more power and i don't like to think of it that way but like authority. they had more authority than than the pastor um and it's not that our pastors have like so much power and authority but like um the the it isn't the local church that like i, I don't mean to to misspeak i don't want to misspeak i'm afraid <laughs> to misspeak and like uh dig a hole but like uh a lot of people think that like, so even as, as you are part of a church, Kirk, that's, that is searching for a rector mm -hmm. and you will like that your church will decide whether to approve the candidates that come through. However, um, like once you select the rector, that person is empowered to, to yeah. lead that church. That's right. yep. And then at that point that, that rector, um, serves at, at the pleasure of the bishop, not necessarily congregation, which is yep. kind of an interesting thing. Yep. However, so, so it's not like um, we, we are constantly at, at the mercy of a church that will, you know, a 51% vote would like, would kick us out. Um, if there's ever um, contentious relationships there, like we've already kind of lost is, yeah. I guess, is the point. Um, and so it's not that I wield authority um, with an iron fist, but, but, um, we have to wield it, uh, our, our authority in a Christ-like way, a yeah. servant-like way, a, a compelling way. And if people aren't following, then we we kind of yeah. um, have to like realize that on our own. And, um, and well, I want to, in a moment, I want to make, serve. I want to make an apology an appeal to American Christians to think, um, think more positively about authority, but, mm, but, yeah. but, but I've, but I've heard this. Um, so I'm on our vestry and I'm on our rector search committee as well. And uh, it has it has been described to me with the proviso that this is a rather crude uh, distinction, but a helpful distinction. Um, the vestry um, largely which, makes the which which um, is a term that, that means like parish council parish or church council. Yep. church board. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's it's like a very like waspy Episcopalian word. <laughs> like yes, yeah, I mean vestry, and it and it's simply like the the term comes yes. from like the people the who room... met in the room. Where the room people where put on vestments. Put on vestments, yeah. That like, <laughs> as, right. as, yeah. Anyway, yeah, like the room around the corner that you could never see, but like yeah. the choir and the and the, the priest came out of, they were coming out of the room where you put on vestments, so they called it the vestry, and that's where the council met, and so it just became known as the vestry because that's where they met. Yeah. But anyhow, the vestry is responsible for everything in the nave up to the altar rail, and the priest has authority every, from everything beyond the altar rail, which is to say that there's um, there there's there's a balance and an understanding that the priest 
um, has authority from the bishop to do word and sacrament and, and, and to cast the vision in that regard. Um, and the vestry, it like, does the really important work of keeping the building functioning and a happy, healthy, uh, productive place. And, but I, I don't, I don't. Yeah. I don't yeah. I mean, there, we there are just like financial concerns and many yeah. things like that. And Kirk, I mean, one book that I think is really good is this yes. one that I'm holding up. We have the, been doing a book study on that. Have you really? We have. Oh, it's, yep. called, it's called The Rector in the Vestry, yep. The Essential Guide for the Anglican Church. And um, it is really helpful for us Americans who think a lot of democracy. Yes. Um, and, and think about like this idea of like putting everything to a vote uh, and essentially having like an oppositional like board that, that, that like kind of almost keeps the senior pastor in check. Now, right. obviously there need to be checks like so abuse doesn't happen. But like if you have opposition, that's a bad thing. <laughs> like, yes. you know, holding like if if a, a pastor needs to be held accountable, um, what's most helpful is for everyone to be rowing in the same direction. And and in our polity, like our priests, our rectors are given I shouldn't say priests because priest is just an office. The, the rector is like the, the, the senior right. pastor, the pastor in charge. Um, they're given um, leadership. And uh, now if you are not winsome and winsomely persuasive, like nobody's going to get in the boat and row with you. Um, and so it is important uh, to uh, – th the question isn't who has the power, I guess is what I'm trying to say in a really uh, awkward way. But like um, – <laughs> Like the reality is, is that like, yes, um, I have more power than, than, than uh, more authority than pastors in other traditions. But if I cannot lead in a way that, that inspires people to follow, like I am going to be an ineffective leader and I will have a very short life, um, yeah. at, at, at my parish. And so, um, what I, the, the reason I'm really glad Kirk, that you guys are reading this is, is, um, as you guys will bring on a new priest. Um, a new rector um, for the rest of you to be like, we are here to support you and your vision. Like we're all jumping in the boat and we're rowing with you. We're not here to like question every move. Like mm -hmm. let's, oh, I'm, I'm really skeptical of this. Like that's, that, that would be a really unhealthy dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. We have really been talking through um, trying to understand the healthiest dynamic um, that can exist between rector and vestry and, and intentionally move towards that, um, as we call a rector. And yeah, because I think there's some so people that the rector's who, on the same board, on right, board with page. our vision yeah, for that. Yep. Yeah, like, I think there's some people who, who just kind of like unconsciously think that like, I'm going to get on the council so that I can like sit in the back yeah. with my arms folded and kind of just like keep an <laughs> eye on things. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Make sure that the budget doesn't get out of control. Make sure that like I have influence and boy, would that be uh, Kirk, if, if we have like uh, each member, like thinking that they want power and influence. And so that's really interesting as we talk about where the rubber hits the road, um, which is why we're having this discussion to begin with is, is, um, uh, that there's a, each diocese has a standing committee. And as people learn about that, they're like, oh, wow. Like, um, these, these people are kind of appointed and not elected. And, um, like they're, they're given, um, you know, all kinds of power. It's, it's, uh, as people learn about this, there's a skepticism that goes into that, that, um, kind of presupposes, um, and, and even as people are asking about it, like, and we're and we as a diocese are going through this 
process of um, selecting um, a few new lay people to stand on the standing committee. Uh, here's the unspoken thing, Kirk. And I'm going to say the unspoken thing is that anyone who like pushes really hard for authority and anyone who wants probably, it probably doesn't deserve it. It's probably yeah. not a great yeah. person to, to, to place in those positions. Well, this is the conundrum we have like, in American politics, right? But like on a smaller scale, you yes. See it oh yeah. Yeah. Anyone who wants to be president should not Shouldn't be. be. Right? Yes, exactly. It almost be, the, <laughs> it should almost be a qualification that like it ought to be forced on like the right. unwilling, like so you like, are our president, whether you like it or not. So George Washington was essentially our most worthy president yes. because yes. He was yeah. all, it was the only one whose arm had to be twisted. Yeah. John, John Adams desperately wanted it and everyone out thereafter desperately wanted it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So that's, that's, um, Episcopal polity and our particular Episcopality, Episcopal polity in North American Anglicanism, which we need to be clear is different than Church of England Anglicanism, um, which, which, which is same but different. Um, and, and it's probably not beneficial to go into that. Okay. Because, because it isn't just like a world, a globe of diocese, like we have provinces yeah. within, with so like right. uh, a bunch of bishops in America have come together to form a province here called the ACNA. Yeah. And so, so we have our own provincial canons, yeah. um, constitution and canons that, that uh, we abide by. Yeah. And we have our own, um, our own prayer book, which was passed in 2019 because the house of bishops wanted it and passed it. For example, um, in the church of England, they're still using the <laughs> 1662 book of common prayer, which is great. And you should sample it. Um, you, you, you love it. You, you don't even know that you love it, but you do. If you've ever like read uh, the Bronte novels or watched a Jane Austen adaptation, right? Um, but the reason they don't have a newer prayer book is because prayer books have to be passed by parliament, <laughs> right. right? So like their, their polity is complicated because it's an established church and parliament was super close to passing a new prayer book in 1929, um, but, but, but didn't. And so 1662 remains that, but but Christopher, I want to talk a little bit. I want to make a, a little apology for, um, sure, yeah, for Episcopal government, um, because like I said, kind of in, in 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 thoughtful Christian circles on the interwebs, um, like I said, our bishops have have been been dunked on recently, and I just um, particularly by our Presbyterian brethren who are saying, "See, we told you so," and I just want to make a a brief uh, uh, appeal. Um, to, to Episcopal government. First of all, Christopher, the matter of apostolic succession. Um, it's interesting, as I was reading um, uh, other biblical commentaries on, on, the, on what you and I would see as the obvious, obvious biblical nature of the threefold order of ministry, that is bishop, priest, and deacon, which is, uh, to me, clear as day in the New Testament. Um, uh, I it's interesting, John 20 is a seminal text for me um, as, as obviously the first Episcopal consecration. Um, all consecrations of bishops seem to me look like John 20. Jesus breathes on the apostles as he appears in the upper room and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he passes on to them what we call the keys, right? <laughs> Whosoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain are retained, right? He's giving them the apostolic ministry, which is the ministry of reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins. Why did Christ die on the cross, Christopher? As a sacrifice for sins. As yeah, sacrifice to forgive our to sins. To reconcile us to God. Yes, yes. And as he, as St. Paul writes in Colossians, like 
our our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation, right? So like um, you have these people that are consecrated, the Holy Spirit is passed onto them through the laying out of hands and the breathing upon them. And I mean, that is, if you've ever seen a bishop ordained or consecrated, that is what is happening, right? So, so I think you have the apostolic succession and um, the bishop, Christopher, who consecrated you, the bishop who, who um, uh, um, uh, confirmed me, was consecrated by a bishop, who was consecrated by a bishop, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, who was consecrated by an apostle, who was breathed on by Jesus. There's an unbroken line of apostolic succession in which the faith, in which the faith was passed on, and the authority to teach and administer the sacraments was passed on. Um, and that that is that is a powerful thing. And um, uh, there there are there are texts where we see that. Um, authority isn't passed on willy-nilly or by accident or, or, or just kind of people who are inspired or who speak with authority are permitted to preach. But we see that authority is very specifically and dare we say sacramentally passed on. Um, for example, in Mark, we're going through Mark this year, Christopher, in Mark chapter three, verses 14 through 16, we see the commissioning of the apostles uh, of the, the disciples. Um, and I'll just read here. And he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. I mean, there's the word. And he ordained 12, right? Mm -hmm. We have um, ordination <laughs> in the gospels. Uh, in First Timothy, Christopher, you describe these as the pastoral epistles. Um, First Timothy 2, verse 7, um, we read, Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will therefore that men pray every, everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, etc. Um, and we see in 2 Timothy 1, verses six and seven. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. I mean, how do you get around that, Christopher? <laughs> I'm going to repeat that again, because I, I think if you're sort of kind of just in kind of a large, happy American evangelical church, you probably haven't had eyes to see this passage and have just kind of glossed over it. Um, Wherefore, I put in thee remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, right? These are the fruits of ordination um, with the laying on of hands. Uh, and then, and then I already, I already brought up John 20, I guess. So, but finally, Christopher, I, I, I mentioned this before to you and I've talked about this a lot. I, I bang on this drum a lot. The council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, um, a bunch of stuff happens, right? This is the council. What do we do with this growing body of Gentiles? Um, they're ritually impure. They haven't been circumcised. Are we going to get them circumcised? Um, are, are they permitted to eat poor? Um, what about kosher eating? All this stuff. Um, what do we do with them, right? Um, and there are people on both sides 
um, the Judaizers speak, and then those that are more kind of um, laissez-faire with the Gentiles speak. And who stands up and makes a pronouncement? James the Just. Bishop of Jerusalem. And Christopher, how many dissenters speak after him? None. None. He, he offers, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, he offers the decision, yeah. When the bishop delivers his counsel, well, that's that. And so this is, Christopher, I would say um, authority is biblical. It's godly. Oh, yeah. Good order is biblical and godly. And submission to good order and apostolic authority is biblical and godly. And I guess that's the, the last thing I would say. Um, we haven't always borne good fruit, um, but I want to gently say the fruit of Presbyterianism in America is like 30 some denominations. Uh, and the, 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 the synodical squabbling um, is really quite something in Presbyterian DNA. And it's almost intentionally built in the DNA because there is no bishop that can stand up after, after both sides have spoken and deliver final authoritative counsel. Um, we see this as well. I say this super gently, but in the Southern Baptist Convention, there is no authority that after both sides have spoken that can deliver counsel. And then that's that. And there's just kind of endless warfare <laughs> that, 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 that can develop. Um, so I, I don't know if you want to add on to that before we speak on the matter of um, fallible. What, what do we do with the fact that they're fallible bishops? Do, do, you have any, do you have anything you wanted to add about the matter of up with authority? Nope. That's actually the name of a book by Victor Lee Austin, who is the, um, who was the resident theologian at St. Thomas Church, Fifth Avenue, a great historic church in New York City. And he's now the, I think, the canon theologian of the Episcopal Diocese of Fort Worth, Dallas, something. But he wrote a book called Up With Authority, which is like a deliciously shocking title for like an American reader, right? Um, great book, a uh, great theologian. I recommend kind of reading him wherever you encounter him. But Christopher, I, we should end with this. What do we do with um, the fact that sometimes bishops are humans and err? Well, I mean, yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, it, making somebody a bishop uh, does not mean that they become a superhuman and not prone to error, right? And and so that's why there are, um, you know, built into our constitution and canons provisions um, to remove or correct uh, a bishop who is in error, whether in um, in teaching, you know, if, if they have uh, betrayed the apostolic faith or uh, in, in behavior. Um, and, and Kirk, uh, I remember, you probably know more about this than me, that, that there was a bishop who uh, um, uh, continued to use pornography and was removed. Yes. Um, uh, he was, uh, and uh, we don't need to, to say names or anything, but like, I remember I, I hadn't heard about that case. Um, and uh, I, I don't know how, how it was adjudicated, how they figured out that he was, in fact, uh, continuing to, to use pornography, but they said, this is not um, what we, like the behavior we expect from a pastor of pastors. There's a certain maturity. It's not that we stop sinning, but like uh, there are standards for, for behavior that, that, that we want to uphold. Yeah. He has been, so, so, it's, so it's not like our, our bishops are like these Royal um, untouchable um, powerful, you know, beings that, yeah. that, that um, we cannot remove if they misbehave. Let me offer this as a, um, as an analogy, perhaps as well. So, uh, the fact that there are fallible and maybe even wicked bishops um, doesn't render ungodly the office. 
Um, for example, um, for those who have had a, um, a wicked or abusive father in their childhood, um, they wouldn't wish the abolition of fatherhood. <laughs> Rather, you, you yearn for a good father. <laughs> um, and mm -hmm. and in, in the end, we all yearn to collapse in the arms of the father, our father, which art in heaven, right? <laughs> so the fact that at some point, and, and there's, we can all, this, this is actually a human rite of passage, right? The moment we realize our fathers are, are broken people. Um, and and we'll all, Christopher, you and I will have to endure this as well as we watch our children realize that that we are not the, the fathers that we wish we could be or should be, right? As we, um, shove, <laughs> as we shove candy into their pockets <laughs> and tell them to just, just like, don't reveal it to the authorities. Yes, right? Um, we don't, we, 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 it makes us yearn for the our father, the good father, right? Abba, Abba Father. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so the fact that there are um, bishops that are asleep at the at the switch, or 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 good bishops that erred, um, or didn't or made the wrong decision in a moment of crisis or whatever, um, doesn't render unbiblical, ungodly the the office of of bishop. Um, so I, what do you think of that analogy? Is that is that apt? Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, let me see. Was there one more thing I wanted to write about? Yeah, um, bishops as the linchpin of orthodoxy and gospel integrity. Um, this goes way, way back. Um, this goes back to uh, Ignatius of Antioch. And Christopher, I always get this wrong, so please uh, correct me. Um, St. John, uh, the, uh, the author of the Gospels and the Epistles, um, St. John um, taught Polycarp. Is that correct? St. John ordained Polycarp, who ordained Ignatius, or is it St. John ordained Ignatius? Oh, I hate that I can never remember this this apostolic chain. And and you, you also failed to remember that uh, if I didn't read something in the last two weeks, I've forgotten it. So <laughs> anyhow, I'm, I'm not going to be able to help. Anyhow, we have John's letters. We have the martyrdom of Polycarp, which is a, itself a, a fascinating text. But then Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch in the second century, just decades after uh, St. John dies, um, uh, we have Ignatius of Antioch sending out pastoral letters. And we have already, Christopher, very clearly a threefold order of ministry, bishop, priest, and deacon. Um, and so we see in the New Testament, Episcopoi and Presbyteroi use sort of um, their concentric circles. They overlap a bit. And there's been some scholarship around that, disentangling that, that they, they're not synonymous. Um, no. Uh, it, they, sometimes there's, they seem to, there's it, overlap. There's, there seems to be an emerging episcopacy. Yes, that's These exactly Overseers, correct. yeah, yeah. But, but here are things that Ignatius says, Christopher. Um, he says, let us, therefore, be careful not to oppose the bishop in order that we might be obedient to God. Um, for everyone whom the master of the house sends to manage his own house, we must welcome as we would the one who sent him. It is obvious, therefore, that we must regard the bishop as the Lord himself. And there we see as Americans the shocking appeal to authority, right? Like if God sends someone, probably listen to his messenger, right? Um, so, and there, there I, I had several other quotes lined up, but we're going long. Um, but we see here that um, 
the, the bishop as the source of unity and the preserver of, um, of gospel integrity and the faith once delivered. And uh, in other models, um, there's nothing, uh, you, you have just a bunch of, you have thousands of mini popes running around and there's, there's just no accountability. If um, a, a good biblical evangelical megachurch down the street, if that pastor begins to err, there's nothing to call him into check. And Christopher, you and I know of, um, we, could we could think of a handful of examples off the top of our heads where bishops have corrected um, errant um, pastors who are, who are kind of teaching poorly or wrongly or, 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 or were encouraged to kind of teach in other directions. Um, this is a thing that happens in Episcopal models because there's a mechanism for godly authority to be exercised. So I, I guess I wanted to make that point as well. Thoughts? Uh, I, I think uh, you kind of covered uh, a great deal there in, in um, saying it has biblical warrant, uh, the, Episcop the Episcopacy um, and, and the, the structures that we have. Uh, it has biblical warrant, and it, uh, it's also attested to in early documents, like very, 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 very early in the church, um, like the beginning of the first century. Uh, I'm sorry, beginning of the second century, yeah. um, we see – um, it, it stated as just a given that in fact there are bishops yeah. and, and, um, uh, so, so, um, the bishop, bishops have wielded power on, in an ungodly way. Um, but ultimately, uh, authority in itself, like we, we associate it, uh, with uh, negative things because we're Americans because yeah. we formed a more perfect union because we had a yes. bad king yes. and um, th that doesn't make authority bad and I, I think you um, said that very well Kirk yeah yeah. there's more we could talk about um, and maybe we should make this a subject for another podcast uh, uh, the Protestant losing of the plot like the point was reform and reunion not revolution and disarray sure. um, so like if we believe in the Reformation, right, if we believe in what Luther and Calvin were doing and um, Thomas Cranmer, um, uh, the point is to reform the, the, the Catholic Church, <laughs> not to splinter Christendom forever. Um, and reform ultimately means reunion, right, that we all become Catholics again, um, which, like, that, that may really zing some people in the ears. <laughs> but that means that, like, Ultimately, we're all going to be Episcopal, like Catholic Episcopalians again, God willing, right? Um, and yeah. so, <laughs> well, I and, and something I should point out here, Kirk, uh, it was also a given by I don't know when, maybe third the third century, that the Bishop of Rome was kind of the the first among equals. Um, <laughs> it, it was kind of a given and assumed. Uh, now we uh, Anglicans would say that um, that is very different than the 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 um, the, the power the bishop will the i'm sorry the power the pope wielded around the reformation um that that like sitting um ex cathedra and um kind of uh having an authority that that essentially trumps scripture that um is seems to be in conflict with scripture like that that was the conflict of the reformation it was one of epistemology and and one of uh, understanding what the pope was is that like uh and, and kirk um this is interesting for our free church um and kind of lower church uh, friends is uh, do you remember? So, so this will be like me stumping you. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you'll get it right. Um, but do you remember what is placed on the head of every priest who is ordained? 
Ah. Uh, what is it, like pressed down on my head? Was it a Bible? It was a Bible, right? Um, because like we we do not have authority above it and beyond the Bible, and and neither do our bishops. Is yeah. That, like we serve the Scripture. Well, it's in, and and to our um kind of lower church brethren, um when you see the bishop's mitre, that is the pointy hat, um on the back, if you ever see a bishop from behind, it looks like they have like two two um like rat tails, right? Like two little tails. Mm-hmm. Um, and those tails represent the Old and the New Testament, meaning the authority that the bishop carries on his head is to preach the word <laughs> and to mm-hmm. keep the uh, the received biblical faith safe to be passed on to the next generation. Yeah. 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 And, and the words of the ordination service are powerful of passing on, faithfully passing on that which you have received. You know, it's, Amen. Uh, and, and we could go on and on about this. Like the mic, the collar that I wear is, is, is um, a dog collar. It, it shows that I'm a slave of Christ and, yes. and the, um, <laughs> the stole that I wear is a yoke as I'm yes. yoked to Christ. Like I, yeah. So anyway, uh, anything else? No, all that stuff is, 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 is great. And I'm excited to hear feedback from, I, Hey, yeah. Let me just say this. Um, we don't ask, I think enough for, for feedbacks or question feedback or questions from listeners who may have questions or not understand, or just like disagree. <laughs> so I'm guessing like a lot of, a lot of our listeners will be like, Hey, I'll follow you to this point. But that whole section on, on bishops, man. Yeah. Let us know. Um, share with us your, your, your thoughts. I'd, I'd really appreciate that. Yeah. Shall we end in prayer? Let's. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Let your merciful ears, O Lord, be open to the prayers of your humble servants, and that we may receive what we ask. Teach us by your Holy Spirit to ask only those things that are pleasing to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with the same spirit lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Amen. O God and Father of all, whom the whole heavens adore. Let the whole earth also worship you. All nations obey you. All tongues confess and bless you. And men, women, and children everywhere love you and serve you in peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next week, Kirk. Next week.